Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Today we have a returning guest to the podcast. We don't have a lot of those, but Daryl Bach was kind enough to join us once again, having a conversation this time about complementary hermeneutics and approaching the scripture with what he calls a both-and approach rather than an either-or approach when it comes to the hermeneutics of how we study scripture, how we understand particularly things of eschatology and prophecy, reconciling two different systems together. Um, yeah, it was. it's a challenging conversation in a lot of ways. I know I personally was challenged just as we talk through some things. I'm not sure I'm fully on the same page in every area, and that kind of reveals itself through the interview, but it was helpful to at least understand the perspective, and I hope it'll be helpful for you as well. And I was very much affirmed in what I already believe. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all that we're always looking for anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, this is a very high-speed conversation, talking about some pretty major theological concepts. We said this last time with the Daryl Bach interview. Mm -hmm. uh, if you listen at like two times speed, you probably don't want to do that. This go around, uh, it's pretty intense. He goes, his mind is faster than ours. And uh, it was hard for us to keep up. So uh, whatever that means to you, respond appropriately, accordingly, and uh, slow it down if you need to. So, And I'll make one more comment. Yeah. Uh, we didn't just talk about high-level theological concepts. In this interview, we were able to bring it down and to start talking about where the practical application of these things comes into play, why this matters for everyday real-world interactions. And I thought that was very valuable. But you do have to go through the heavy stuff first. You do. <laughs> so you've been warned. You've been warned. And on the other side of the music, you will hear our conversation with Dr. Daryl Bach. See you then. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Dr. Bach is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He has authored, edited, or contributed to many books and articles, including highly respected exegetical commentaries on the books of Luke and Acts, and theological works on various aspects of dispensationalism. He is also the host of the Table Podcast, produced by the Hendricks Center at Dallas Seminary. Dr. Bach, once again, we welcome you to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure as always to be with you. You are one of the very few returning guests, and so uh, so glad to have you. It I've got my Veteran of Foreign Wars medal on my shirt. So we're <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Hopefully not too foreign. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, you're back here because in a recent interview, I heard you say, this is a quote, sometimes our eschatological difference are because we have the pre-selected idea that some questions are either or versus both and. 
I'd love to do an entire show just on that theme because I think it would reveal a lot. And I said, Hey, we've got a show. Let's do this. And uh, <laughs> you obliged. So um, before we start, and, and I know you've answered this question countless times, but because we don't know who's listening and it could be helpful, could you share for us again, the role of progressive dispensationalism seemingly existing as a a mediating view between older forms of dispensationalism and what we call covenant theology before we get into the both and stuff and how that's, uh, you know, revealed in that system. Could you just give an overview of that system? Yeah. And I think I can set up the conversation at the same time. Um, what you've got is, um, a tension between people who are emphasizing in particular what we have now and how the church and the formation of the church operates in God's plan in a decisive way for what it is that God is doing. That's, generally speaking, the way Reformed theology will see the eschatological space. And those in dispensationalism who say, wait a minute, there's a commitment to Israel that's a part of this that also needs to be brought into the equation. And usually that's been framed as, I've got to choose between the church or Israel in the conversation. And uh, what we were arguing was there's a way to have a continuity and a one people of God and to see what the church is on the one hand, but still have a role in the program and plan for Israel on the other. So this is not so much an either or a both. And it shows up in the Olivet Discourse sometimes with the question of, you know, is this the time you're going to destroy the ten the uh, one stone upon another on the temple in Jerusalem? And is that A.D. 70? Uh, or is that something in the future, or could it be a combination of the two? That's that. That's where it tends to manifest itself in one way or the other. Yeah, people will look at Jesus's words there and typically want to relegate everything to the first century or all to the future. And that's exactly to... right. And in okay. fact, what I tell people is the way I got into this. At least one of the ways I got into it is when I read Matthew. My sense was, oh, this is about the future. And then when I read Luke, my sense was, no, this is about the near present. And so then I found myself going, well, I don't think Matthew and, and Luke are going to duke it out in a, you know, in a, in a boxing ring and try and figure out who's left standing, but there must be something going on here. And, um, and, and then the whole idea of how prophecy works in the Old Testament, uh, the idea of what I call pattern prophecy, where something in the near period pictures what the ultimate thing will also look like at the same time so that you can get a both and is kind of the, I got to say this, the door through which you can walk into the conversation and not be left being posed with an either or. Hmm. So I'm, I'd like to ask a question about hermeneutics okay. um, as, as we think about this. And Herman's a good guy. So ask about him. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> So um, from, from my approach, I know uh, Jeremy is happy to describe himself as a progressive dispensationalist. I've been a lot more hesitant to embrace that moniker, uh, and I'm still kind of st studying and learning more about things. So I just kind of say that up front. Um, dispensationalists, obviously, they've traditionally taken the more historical grammatical approach to interpretation that sees the entirety of a passage's meaning tied up in the original context as penned by the original human author. If we were to contrast that with you know the covenant theologians as they're taking a little bit more of a of a canonical approach and in, in, in trying to incorporate uh, what they see across the entire canon, uh, perhaps even through the lens of, of the theology as it's developed through the canon a little bit more as well, 
sometimes even or oftentimes explicitly giving the New Testament the priority and the guiding uh, the, the guiding interpretation over the Old Testament. The question is how how does your interpretive method fit into this spectrum where we see these two kind of contrasting approaches that leads us to be able to embrace a more both-and approach to theological concepts? Well, the simple way to say it is the New Testament revelation complements or completes what you already see in the Old Testament so that they aren't pitted as competing or overarching themes, but one comes alongside the other and fills it out, and in some cases refracts back on the earlier passages. You get more pieces of the puzzle put into place. I say, I, I say to people, it's like the illustration I like to use is you're working on a puzzle, and you got this piece that has this white stuff in it. And as you put more pieces in, all of a sudden you realize, oh, that's a cloud, okay? Nothing in the piece that you had has changed, but because you have more around it, you get a better picture of the fullness of what it is that you're looking at. So you don't lose what you had on the one hand, but you gain what's been, what fills it out on the other. And so, and that allows for the both and their commitments. So how do I apply this to Israel and the church? There are commitments that God makes to Israel as he makes his covenant commitments to them. There are commitments that get expanded and include a broader group of people, which actually was already built in to begin with, um, as you fill out the New Testament. But it doesn't come at the expense of commitments that God has already made to the original group. And so I can have the additions. I can even have the addition of structures like a church that comes in alongside that that gives some, uh, how can I say, some concreteness to what's going on on the one hand, but that doesn't mean that I've lost the presence of the original recipients and the original piece in the process. They've been incorporated and they've been, uh, they've been in view the whole time as well, and I don't lose them in the process. So one way I say it is Gentile inclusion does not mean Israelite exclusion that I can incorporate Gentiles into the picture of things, even at points make them the focus of things, and not lose the original commitments that God made to Israel in the process. I think that that point about you're not losing what was in the original is so key, because it's so often the conversation is presented as, do you believe the original meaning, or do you believe it's reinterpreted? And it it tries to... I don't know. The conversation's kind of framed as pick your one, one of these two camps against each other. Okay? Yes. And I'm saying, no, you don't pit the text against you. This is, this is progressive revelation. You're supplementing what God has already revealed. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the, and now there is a refraction that this is the other point that we're trying to make. There's a refraction that allows you to read the earlier piece in light of the whole with those additions in mind, but you never lose what you originally had. Mm. That's the point. That's the other half of what I'm trying yes. to say, yes. is that there are things that God is going so that the idea isn't, oh, well, I have this impression from this text, and then all of a sudden subsequent revelation tells me, well, my initial impression, which everyone around me also had, all of a sudden is dissolved because of what gets said down the road. Hmm. No, what was originally there was originally there, and what's happened is it's been, it's been supplemented, added to, it's been complemented by way the revelation has progressed. I was reading an article yesterday, it's almost 30 years old now, um, that Robert Thomas wrote in critique of progressive dispensational hermeneutics. And, you know, he takes more of the, I think, Ryerian view of dispensationalism. 
and was basically saying that you and, and Craig Blazing and Robert Saucy, you're reinterpreting certain aspects of the Old Testament, but I don't think you're ever comfortable with that language, are you? You never no, say you, no, you change meaning. No, that's not meaning. what we're doing. We're, that's the whole point of saying it's, I, I tell, my response to him is Revelation did not stop at Malachi, okay? That, that what you've got with Matthew through Revelation is the expansion and development of promises that you have. That's why I like the, that's why I like the image of, the, of putting a jigsaw puzzle together, okay? Because anyone who's had the jigsaw puzzle experience knows while you're putting the pieces on that, you go, what in the world is that? And which piece goes with that? All of a sudden you drop in a particular piece. I, I know what I'm looking at now. Mm and uh or another example i like to use is going to a to a movie mystery you know a mystery movie about a mystery and you're and while you're watching it the first time you're trying to figure out all right who did it what's going on here etc you're trying to figure out how the pieces drop in when you go the second time knowing how the ending works all of a sudden you're seeing stuff in the unfolding of, oh i missed that the first time i saw this and i see where this is going mm -hmm. So with that concept, um, tell me if this is helpful language or if this, if this gets at what you're getting at or if this is a little bit different. The, the meaning is fixed based off of the, the original author's intent. It's, it's there. It means what it is. It's what the text says. But because of the later revelation that comes along, the significance of perhaps what was originally meant is expanded or the implications are expanded. Is that is that what you're getting at, or are you are you actually a saying touch something a little slightly different? more dynamic? That's close, okay. But what I would say is the meaning is fixed, but that fixedness may have an element of openness to it because of the nature of the promise. Okay, remember that the nature of the original promise is, at least in the covenant commitment, is I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Okay, so there's an open endedness to the aspect of that promise that comes along. I have an illustration I used to use. I used to use this when I taught this in class on hermeneutics and other things. I say, imagine you're a single person going to seminary and you're a young guy and you go, well, I want to go to seminary, but I can't afford it. So you come to someone who becomes your benefactor and, you, and they say to you, I'm going to support you as long as you're in seminary because I believe in where you're going. So you... So you land in seminary, okay, and you're a single person, and you fall in love, okay? And all of a sudden, you decide you're going to get married. And now the question is, what's the scope of this promise that was made to me in supporting me while I go through seminary? Is it only a support for my tuition and my, and my personal well-being, or will it include this person who's now become attached to me as, as my life has progressed, if I can you know, set up the analogy. <laughs> and then, so you get married and you don't know the nature of that commitment until the benefactor says to you, no, I'm not just paying for you. I'm paying for you and your wife. I'm supportive of you, period. Okay. And so you take on, there's the taking on of an additional beneficiary, if you will, which was in the promise potentially to begin with, but you didn't know that till that beneficiary showed up. And the person who made the promise responded to what it is they committed to you for. I think that's a helpful illustration. Uh, is the are we, how do you discern the the openness of a particular promise? You read the text and takes and the some... whole of revelation to figure it out. Okay, so, okay. so just as you just keep reading, yeah, you you just remind yourself 
Revelation does not stop at Malachi. My definitions are not fixed at the point of Malachi. The, uh, the claim of Matthew through Revelation is to pick up the promises of God and to develop them. What? How does the um, mysteries that Paul talks about? Paul, you know, brings up mysteries a lot in his letters and Ephesians and Colossians and in Romans. Uh, how does mystery play into all that? Well, uh, that the mystery is the unfolding of the pieces that haven't been unfolded yet until the mystery is revealed. Hmm. Okay, so I, that's why it was a mystery. Now, it, now after it's been revealed, it's not a mystery anymore. Okay, right. it's a mystery revealed, but up to that point, it's a mystery. And so, and then the question is, what's the relation? One of the debates I used to have with Bob Thomas was about what to do with Romans 16, 25 to 27, where there's a reference to the scripture. Yes. And I, and I say, there is no New Testament when Paul is writing. Okay, that's got to be a reference to the Hebrew scripture. Hmm. And he's talking about connections of promises that are made there in relationship to the idea of mystery. And he wanted to make it anticipatory of the New Testament. I say, there is no way anyone reading that book in Romans in the original time could figure out that's what he meant because the thing didn't exist yet. So when when you're reading this, things this way and you're, you, you're reading the Old Testament and there's you know later fuller development in the New Testament and you're reading both of those things together, is it proper then to go back at the old testament text and say this is what this text means with all of the inclusiveness of what has been added in the new testament yeah ultimately say, i would say no. ultimately i would say yes so if you're if underneath your question is a kind of hersheyan model of uh you know there's the author's intent and then there's the significance grows out of it um I actually think what what you've got instead is you've got an intent but that intent is somewhat open-ended in terms of how that plays itself out. Mm. So I don't know the fixedness of the meaning until I get all the revelation that deals with the topic. And, and so so I've, I've got a direction. I've got parameters. I know what this can mean to a degree and what it can't mean, but there's other stuff in there that could get filled out by what gets said later. And that's I think that's a prefer a preferred way to read that element. I actually think that um, that the Hersheyan model, which I generally accept, is more complicated than people think, and uh, and it's because of this open end. And it's the Psalter works the same way. Uh, if you think about the Psalms, the Psalms articulate a particular experience of the psalmist, but the intent is not just to limit yourself to the particular experience of the psalmist but the kind of experience the psalmist has that I can join into. Hmm. And it's written with that intent. That's why it gets put in a Psalter. This is about my relationship with God and how the relationship with God works. Now, That's we really helpful. Uh, yeah. we, we, we haven't used the term complementary hermeneutics. Is that what you would call this? Is that how that... All of this is complementary hermeneutics. Yeah, it com yeah. Because, because the subsequent revelation completes or complements what you already had, and it's in line with it. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's transition then to the, the theology aspect of it. Okay, now that we've talked about the hermeneutic side, that obviously comes before our theology, and the both-and tension that progressive dispensationalism says, well, let's, let's live in the tension instead of trying to resolve it, um, that, that takes place in the theological realm. And so 
what what direction could we start going? Maybe the Abrahamic covenant or somewhere else where we can talk about how this this tension reveals itself in theology? Well, my point would be that all three covenant, first of all, you've got, a, uh, when it comes to the kingdom, let me go work backwards. Okay. Okay. When it comes to the kingdom, as it's declared in the New Testament, you've got both the idea that it's being, I think, being inaugurated, and then there's the consummation. There's everything that comes with it. One of the problems in the conversation is, is that you have some people who think, unless you have everything, you don't have anything. Okay. So unless I've got consummation, okay, I don't have a start because it all happens at once to which I go, that isn't how it works. Okay. I've got predictions about the suffering and exaltation of Christ and the ultimate victory of Christ in the Hebrew scripture. And I know that involves two comings and I know those two comings are separated by just a pinch of time. Okay. In fact, mm -hmm. that pinch keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as time passes. <laughs> And so, um, so that already tells me that the program tied to the Christ is, is in an expanding time frame. Uh, and the things associated with his coming and, his, and, and the working out and the execution of salvation are in an expanding time frame. Why would I think so, uh, the kingdom would be any different? We actually, we actually don't even blink when we think about this in relationship to our own salvation. I go, I'm saved. I'm justified. Okay. I'm declared righteous. But you can ask my wife, I'm not perfect and consummated yet, okay? All but right? close. She may be praying for it any day now, but it's not coming, okay? <laughs> and, and so um, so in that sense, the, uh, our salvation is now and not yet. Well, why would the kingdom program that oversees that be any different? It. What texts do you like to go to that show that Jesus is reigning as king right now? Because as you think of traditional dispensationalism, you know, that's a big, that's a big no-no. You, you don't say that yet. And they want to be convinced, of course, by the text of scripture as they should be. And so where do you go to show that he's presently reigning as king? Well, first of all, his name is a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a clue. He's Jesus Christ. And I like to tell people when you, uh, this isn't Jesus pulling out a driver's license in which his first name is Jesus and his second name is Christ. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a title. Mm -hmm. Okay. Jesus, the Messiah, which means he's ruling. He's, and it isn't Jesus will be Messiah. Okay. I confess Jesus is the Messiah and he's executing some of the benefits of having that rule. At Acts two, he's distributing the spirit of God as a result of forgiveness. That's the new covenant that he's executing. Um, so that's one example. Another example I like is the prayer in Ephesians 1, where Jesus is seated above all rule, power, authority, and dominion, above and below, in this age and in the age to come. So he kind of covers it, okay? I cover it geographically. I cover it chronologically. Now the question is, what's left? Mm -hmm. And so, so, you're, so you're sitting there talking about the authority. Now, what some people will say is, well, you don't have that thing until he's ruling on earth, okay? Until he's physically ruling on earth from Israel. But I'm saying to you, he's citing passages that are about what his career is about, what his promise is about. And there's this little obscure passage in 1 Chronicles 29, 23, in which the throne on which Solomon sits, which is an earthly throne, is called the Lord's throne. Because what dispensationalists want to do is they want to say, well, the Lord's throne is in heaven, but David's throne is on earth. To which this passage says, no, 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 no. David's throne is the Lord's throne, 
And it doesn't make any difference whether it's on heaven or on earth. The only thing that matters is the person is executing the way and will of God as his regent. Hmm. And so um, so that those would be the at least some of the past. I, I could talk about the exchange that takes place in, in Colossians 1.14. You know, That's he what I was has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, yes. not it's coming one day. Yes. And so, so, but the distinction traditional dispensationalists made is unless it's happening on earth, it's not the earthly kingdom the Old Testament was talking about. And, and my point is, no, the issue is not where it happens. Okay, we, we actually aren't talking about a real chair. Let's be clear about that. Hmm. That's a metaphor. We aren't talking about God's right hand, okay? Hmm. Uh, show me God's right hand, okay? When you when you locate it, let me know. Give me the address. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, you know, we're talking about a, a picture, a metaphor of rule, and a rule in which in which the two figures are connected to one another in the execution of what's going on. That's what's going on in the New Testament. So now, you know, be patient with me just a little bit here as I just kind of think through <laughs> these concepts. Um, obviously, from the, you know, the school of dispensationalism that, you know, I, um, the school that I went to was much more of a Ryrian dispensational school. And that's kind of when my, my train of thought and progression and things, um, the, the hang up with the recognizing, okay, yes, Christ certainly is head of the church he certainly is reigning in a sense but there's always that hesitation to make it go the full way to say okay yes he is reigning and ruling over his church and over the spiritual kingdom but that's not the davidic kingdom like there's a disconnect between his current rule and reign and the davidic reign in particular would you say that just i guess it's the it is the already and the not yet with the davidic reign in conjunction with his reign overall okay, so let me do it let me do it this way and i'll walk you through the covenants and we'll have some fun <laughs> okay the abrahamic the abrahamic covenant was the original promise that started the whole shooting match right i mean doesn't matter whether it's on earth or heaven that's what we're talking about we're talking about the restoration the ultimate restoration of what Genesis 1, the situation Genesis 1 to 11 put us in, which was simply put in a technical theological term, a mess. Mm -hmm. And so um, so that's where you start off. Uh, and you have the promise of the seed that's going to bless the world in that, in, that, in that promise. Okay? The next piece that you get is the Davidic covenant. Davidic covenant is going to make point, this is going to happen through a figure that's going to allow the Davidic dynasty to have no end, okay? Now, I could conceive of that when it's given in two ways. I either keep sending kings, okay, and generation after generation is a Davidic king, or I find a Davidic king who's going to be around for a very, very long time, okay? All right, so that's, that's step two. Step three is the new covenant, okay? I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm also going to give, I'm going to write the law in your heart. Okay, which Ezekiel describes as a watching. I'm going to put the spirit inside of you. Now, everyone, dispensational or otherwise, has recognized throughout all its history the fulfillment in Christ of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, if you have any doubts about that, read the book of Galatians. Uh, book of Hebrews might be a little bit of a hint, too. Okay, then you come to, let me go to the new covenant. For a long time, dispensationalists said, oh no, there are two new covenants because the original covenant's written to Israel and Judah, okay? But the original covenant 
is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, which always had the world in view. Okay, it always had the world in view. Uh, Israel and Judah were at the hub of what was going to happen, but it wasn't to the exclusion of the world. And so, because the problem of the Abraham covenant is to solve a global problem, not a national problem. Okay, that's why you picked a nation to be the vehicle through which the nations would get blessed. Okay, so so the way I like to say it now, I'm going to get visual. Is I've got bread on one side and bread on the other. The Davidic covenant's the meat, and it's all one sandwich, okay? So have a bite, <laughs> all right? Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's all connected to one another. And even though the surprise for the first generation was, but Israel's not biting, okay? They're not eating the sandwich. I mean, if you are, a remnant is, but they're generally not. But we've got a mass of people from the nations who are responding, Okay. And that's Romans 9 to 11. Romans 9 to 11 says, this promise isn't going away, and it isn't a different promise. It's the same promise. Israel's going to be brought back into it at the end, and in that way, all Israel will be saved. And what gets what gets said very literally in Jeremiah ends up being fulfilled at that point. So then what do you say to somebody then who is more on the covenant side of things, more reform guy saying, oh, yeah, I'm tracking with you. You've got these covenants that are established and, and their meaning, the full intention is expanded over time. Now just do that. You, you've done it to the covenants. Now just do it to Israel. And, and no, now the, because, the true meaning of Israel has been revealed. Because you've got Romans 9 to 11 there screaming at you saying that what I mean by Israel in this conversation is not every believer whoever was, but I'm talking particularly about, about that group of Jewish people who have not responded to the covenant, who I would give, Paul says, I would give my life for if they could get saved. Hmm. Okay? So he's very clear about what his topic is to 9-11. He hasn't expanded the definition of Israel, at least with regard to what he's talking about in 9-11. He's thinking about this group that doesn't believe now, that he thinks will get grafted back in and will believe in the future. Hmm. And so, again, Gentile inclusion doesn't mean Israelite exclusion. And what the Reformed tradition has tended to do is to say, well, it's through Christ and it's in the church, so the church is the answer. But my point is, yes, it's through Christ, and I might even be willing to say, yes, and it's through the, through the church, the body of Christ, that it will happen. But Jews are going to come back into the promise. That's what Romans 9 to 11 says. And we're going to be in a place where it's a nation among nations because texts like Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 19 say God is going to build a highway. It's going to go from Egypt through Jerusalem to Assyria. And I'm going to call Egypt, Israel, and Assyria my people, which to an Old Testament ears would have been what? Yeah. Okay. I don't get that. And that's put in very, for lack of a better description, literal terms in terms of how that's going to work. Nations among the earth reconciled to one another because reconciliation is not just individual. It's also corporate. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to clarify something you just said. You're even willing to say that it'll be through the church that it'll happen with Israel. What did you mean by that? Well, the point that I'm saying is, is that we get into a huge debate about whether Israel can ever refer to all believers or not. 
or whether the consonants uh, current institution of the church is the place through which blessing is found. I would prefer to say the place where blessing is found is in Christ, period. And I would prefer to say that the church, the church is an institution that exists as Christ's body while Christ is not physically present with us. He's only spiritually present with yeah. us. The millennium is a period in which, my, I have a joke here, and it goes, we aren't going to debate who the Pope is in the millennium. Amen. Okay, all right. Everyone will know who the head of the church is in the millennium. He will be with us. He's physically returned to be a part of that. So that's a different structure. That's a different thing. But people who are part of the church will be a part of that thing. Okay? So that's why that's why you're hearing me speak ambiguously about what the church is and could become mm. and what it becomes a part of. I actually think it's more precise to talk about it in the constitution of the totality of what the millennium is, and that the millennium is going to be made up of nations that believe in who the Christ is, without exception, both Israel and the nations as a whole, mm. while operating in reconciled peace with one another. Um, and then, and then eventually we get to the new heavens and the new earth that the ominous love. So, and we're all, we can all be happy because it's a both and. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the more skeptical among us, uh, maybe Ken would fit into this category, uh, for the, the older forms of dispensationalism would say, you know, okay, this both and stuff, you can only hold that tension for so long because eventually one side will end up gobbling up the other. Is that true? No, not in a reconciliation model. The whole point of reconciliation is that both sides are present and accounted for. Hmm. And so they both get the same set of blessings. They both experience the same level of grace. They all get all the benefits that Christ provides, etc. The other thing that I tell you what it does do, it cuts out it cuts out any sense of nationalism. Okay? Hmm. Because we all share in what Christ has provided. Okay. It's just my analogy here is like the European Union. Okay. They're all Europeans. Okay. But I've got Italians, Germans, French in there. I don't know what to do with the British. We'll put them off to the side. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, you know, that I, I can have unity at one level of identity and distinction at the yes. level, other level of identity, and they can coexist. Would you say that's comparable to male and female in the church right now? Yeah, you could do it that way. That would be another way to make the same kind of point. So really, this 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 tension is actually, as you just kind of framed it just then, it actually works itself out pretty practically, almost in everyday life, as you're just going about your life and you're trying to be faithful to what you see in Scripture. It ends up having practical impact upon how you interact with others, how you live out your Christian walk. Are there other areas of, of just everyday life where you see this tension coming into play? I can see someone as being distinct on the one hand and honoring their distinctness and yet being like me on the other. Mm. Okay. And I can hold those both side by side. I can't tell you how important that is. Okay. If you move over into the area of race, okay or ethnicity, take your pick as to what term you want to use, that gets debated, okay? You know, it works there, okay? God made us the same, we're all made in the image of God, but he also made us different Amen. at the same time, okay? It works in the body of Christ with regard to gifts. God made us the same in terms of the way we're blessed, but we function differently in terms of the way God has equipped us 
to contribute to that entity. Okay, so there's just lots of places where this works out. And what it does that is profound is it removes the competition and instead substitutes a collaborative appreciation for the diversity that God has created. And I can't tell you how important that is yeah. when it comes to gender. Okay. We, you know, we want to pick sides. We, we have these huge fights in evangelicalism picking sides. I'm sitting here going in the original creation, Eve was put alongside Adam so that together they would manage the creation well. And the goal was for them to collaboratively manage the creation well, to be good stewards. We've turned it into a competition. Okay. We've distorted what it is God has created. And so we worry about what role people play in relationship to it. When the original concern is how can we work together to make it work? And you see it too in the church on the level of personal convictions, not just with spiritual gifts, but you know, Romans 14 um, is a great, great place to see that where we're all going to have different levels of conviction that, where it seems to a degree we're either bound by the spirit or not on certain things. Uh, and we're to live together in peace and harmony. And and how is that even possible um, without this both and tension where we're different? Well, but the I, in same. that, in that area, what I, there's, you know, there's another layer of what's going on and that has to do with the role of conscience in my walk yes. with God. Right. And so, so that, you know, and so here, this, this is like the term fixed we were using earlier. I, I tell my students, it's as wrong to make the Bible do too much as to make the Bible do too little. Hmm. Okay? The liberal makes the Bible do too little. The legalist makes the Bible do too much. Mm -hmm. Okay? So so you want to think about what, what that play. And then there are some places where it says, I don't care what you do as long as you understand what it is you're doing. Yeah. You know? And why it is that you're doing it. And so it might manifest itself in very different, distinct practices on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's a core principle in relationship to your conscience that you're not violating. Yeah. And so that's the Romans, that's part of the Romans 14 discussion. Well, well, I see that in like Paul's life when he was bound by the spirit to go to Jerusalem and you've got believers all along the way saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, you know, and they're trying to get Paul to change his mind, but eventually he goes, he does his thing. They each one led by the Lord doing their own thing. They weren't going to May the Lord's will be done. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, so they're, they're willing sometimes, like I say, sometimes another way to say this is God may lead one person to do one thing and another person to do another thing. And they both may be right. The, amen. Amen. I, and that is if, if more believers would get that one thing right there, that would take care of 95% of the tension, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I think we would, let's put it this way. We'd certainly have better conversations in the church. Amen. Uh, you know, uh, and, and some of the, some of these things that we have fought as if they're tooth and nail at stake. Okay. Okay. I want a tooth. I want a nail. And I also want a hammer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Now, I want to nail I, it down. Yeah. So I, I thought of a question just here now as, as we're just talking through these concepts. Uh, it it kind of is we're talking about the concepts of application and such. The question that I have in my mind is now actually rewinding ourselves back to the conversation that we're having on hermeneutics a little bit ago because my mind is going to, okay, 
we're we're thinking about this this both and and this this complementary approach uh, and the application to, into everyday life. But now here I am. I'm about to start now. At now I'm we're recording this on September 9, and this Sunday I'm about to start a very short series teaching through the Book of Ruth from the Old Testament. How do you see this hermeneutic begin to to come into play? in such a way that brings about legitimate application out of some of these Old Testament texts when we don't have New Testament texts that specifically reference and expand upon the themes of the Old Testament. I don't have a problem with a pastor who says, let me give you a set of applications that come from the book of Ruth in the setting in which it was originally given. And let me talk to you about some applications that come because we can fit Ruth into the entire canon. It's another both and. Hmm. And, and and so I don't feel compelled to choose one versus the other. If I'm going to think biblically, I actually have to pick both. Um, the illustration I love to use for this is, a, is Genesis 3, okay? Genesis 3, originally, I think the original emphasis would have been that the fall has created conflict on the earth, so much so that the serpent— and the men are going to be fighting each other. And just think about this literally. I now have a snake that now is forced to be on the ground that I'm going to be fighting with, okay? And how am I going to get him as a, as a, as a person? I'm going to try and crush his head with my foot, okay? Probably not going to leap at him with my hands, okay? I'm going to try and crush him with my – so how's, what's the battle going to look like? He, I'm going to be going for his head, and he's going to be going for my heel, Okay? That's the imagery of the passage, and it introduces that conflict. Now, as the Bible plays itself out, and the serpent becomes an image for evil, okay, which is what it personifies in Genesis 3 as well, and I think about the seed of the woman in relationship to the promise, now I've got what we call the Proto-Evangelium, okay? It, it may be, I'm going to have fun, it may be more Evangelium than Proto. In other words, it may have taken some time that for the revelation to unfold that I saw it had that dimension. But once it gets that dimension and I understand it, I would be foolish not to talk about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's so that, that's really helpful. And I think I think I may have done that without even phrasing it. So I just finished the book of Judges. Now I'm doing the book of Ruth. And in the book of Judges, yeah, I you can often... tell that uh, Ken is following the the seeker sensitive church plant model. <laughs> I, I just hope Jesus holds off from coming back so he can get to Revelation. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not moving straight through the Bible that way. I'm we're uh, we're moving to the New Testament after that. We need some, yeah. Any, anyway, <laughs> need a little Jesus every now and then. Exactly. Yeah, a little That's... salt and pepper is always good. <laughs> we're we're going we're going to the book of, of Mark after after Ruth, but yeah. um. As I'm going through the book of Judges, I'm often making application about, you know, individual lessons learned from a particular judge about the things going on right then. But then I'm also casting it into the picture of this, this was painting a picture of anticipating a need for a godly king and polemically for Israel, they're trying to argue perhaps for King David. But ultimately, we know that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the remedy for the sinful condition 
that the Israelites were struggling with in the book of Judges. Oh, I'm ready to play the organ right now. There we go. <laughs> Just so as I right am. in line with what you're saying. Then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and both readings are perfectly appropriate. It's, it's, like, it's like the choice every pastor makes about how much of this passage I'm going to preach this Sunday. Okay. And how much of the context do I bring in? Can I juxtapose it to what's before and after? Perfectly legitimate. Can I put it in a much larger frame? Perfectly legitimate. Does the later frame help me understand the earlier frame? Absolutely. Hmm. Oh, cool. it's good stuff. I, like I said before, the both and or the already not yet or the inaugurated but not fulfilled type language that we find in progressive dispensationalism is what really pulled me in. I see it in scripture. I see the tension there. I embrace that tension. It colors my life more. It makes me a happier student of the Bible. I like it. <laughs> it opens up the Bible. Just think about all the levels that it that it allows you to yes. approach the Bible through. I mean, yes. it just it just opens things up like nobody's business. And of course, you know, in our hearts, when we're presented with an either or so often we want to choose both. And that's what, you know, you're allowed to do. And, uh, yep. and so I don't need to be convinced, but for people who are listening, students of scripture, lay people who, who need perhaps a little push, what's your, your main sales pitch when it comes to embracing the tension of both. And what do you say to those people? I've got to let every text count. Mm -hmm. I, I got to let every text count. I, uh, I find if I don't do that, I find myself taking some text and saying, well, that certainly looks like what it's saying, but it can't say that. And I'm, whenever I go there, I'm sitting here going, wait a minute. I might want to slow down and be a little more careful and think through what my options are. I tell my students, when a text catches you out, okay, that's a test of whether you're going to be reading the whole scripture or not. And your default is going to be, I'm going to explain this in such a way that I don't have to deal with what I just thought I saw. Okay. And so, and so you want to ask yourself whether that's appropriate. Now you, in the end, you've got to test it against the whole of scripture and whether you end up landing in a place that puts scripture against itself. But, but until you get there, you need to be open to entertaining what the possibilities might be, because it may be that the place that you landed is not the place to land. Very good. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today and joining us for this conversation. I hope that it was what you wanted it to be. If there's anything else that you want to say. It was both and everything I wanted it to be. <laughs> Excellent. Very, very good. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure.